my memory serves me correctly, I was driving around the city of Indianapolis when I got my first hint of trouble. I was headed to the upper Midwest to do an event for a church like what we're doing this weekend. And uh, I was on the loop going around that city when my phone rang. And on the other end of the line, uh, there was a a young man that I know. He said, hey, I, I need to talk. Do you have a minute? Some background will be helpful here. About six months before this phone call, this guy had been an intern, kind of like Gavin with you guys, working with a church, prepping himself to be a, a gospel preacher. And he had decided to leave that internship early. He was young. He wanted to go to graduate school. And so he had uh, he'd abandoned that and gotten a job and was going back to school. And now six months had come by and, uh, and he called and wanted to talk. So, I mean, I was just driving. So we started talking and he started out by saying, now don't freak out. I don't know why people say that. Because when someone tells me not to freak out, that's exactly what I do. What, what is coming next? And he said, I want to talk to you about drinking, but I don't want you to think that I, that I am drinking or that I want to drink. He said, I was just out with some guys last night. That conversation came up and they said, said some things and I didn't know how to respond. And I want to talk to you about that. So we did. I think it was about 30 minutes or so. And when we got done, he seemed satisfied with a lot of quibbling or arguing. And we got off the phone and uh, he seemed content. I wasn't. It was one of those conversations, you've had conversations like this, where you just got off the phone and you thought, there is more going on here. I don't have the whole story yet. And there was. Because we went from talking about drinking to talking about imprecatory psalms and how that squares with a loving God. And then we were talking about how you could even really be sure the Bible was the word of God at all. And then, and then we were talking about how how we could be sure there was a God at all. In just an astonishingly brief period of time, this young man had gone from preparing himself to preach to literally being on the very edge of falling off the cliff and losing his faith. That is not an unusual story. In fact, I know that it will ring familiar to some of you sitting here. This morning, we have an epidemic of young people who are traveling that same path and losing their faith. I know lots of them. This one was different because it wasn't just another kid that I know that's losing his faith. This was my kid losing his faith. Over the last several years, I've tried to open up in my teaching a little bit about this awful journey that my wife and I are making with our oldest son. And as I've talked about it some publicly, it has been interesting, the avalanche of feedback that I receive. I try to preach this some way everywhere I go. And, and when I do, what often happens is I'm stuck in the lobby for an hour 
talking to the people who want to share their story and share their grief. And so that has been a training ground for me. I've learned some things along the way. I never realized how many of us are traveling this road. I mean, just lots and lots of good disciples. And as I began to get my mind around how many people this is, I began to wonder about my preaching. I've been preaching almost 40 years. And um, I tried to think back. What have, I, what have I done in my teaching for people with prodigal children? And to be honest with you, I couldn't remember anything. I mean, maybe in a sermon, I'd give sort of a glancing blow to parents who had wayward children. But to be honest with you, I had never even in 40 years preached one sermon to speak to that hurting crowd. And then I thought about the sermons I had preached. Like all the lessons about raising children, I have a stack of files that thick of all the sermons I've done about bringing up kids. And I thought how that just must surely have been like pouring salt in the wound for those brokenhearted parents. I said, I guess to some degree that is unavoidable, but it occurred to me that it would have really been nice along the way to have offered some comfort and, and consolation and, and counsel for people who were going through that struggle, the great crowd of people going through that. And so... That's where this sermon came from that I want to share with you today. I have some things in mind for what I would like to do. If I don't do anything this morning beyond just sort of sensitize everybody to this hurting crowd among us, our time will have been well spent. In fact, what it's made me do, brothers and sisters, it's made me start wondering about other little collections of people in our church family quietly suffering awful often overlooked. I would tell you, for the last year, I have been watching my good friend, Matt Basford in the end stages of ALS. And I tell you, we don't think of much, uh, we don't think enough about the caregivers suffering among us. There are lots of crowds of people like that that we need to be more sensitive to. Secondly, if you have a wayward kid and you share this road with us, I hope that maybe we can offer some counsel and some help as you try to minister to your, to your prodigal. And then third, if you don't have prodigals, but you care about people that do, I hope that maybe we can offer some guidance so that you will understand better how to help them. I will make this admission that I'm ripping off a friend, which much of, much of the lesson today. About a year into our journey, I had a good friend who knew my son who sent us an email. And a lot of the stuff I'm going to say to you is stuff he said to me in the early stages of this. I say that because if you like what I said, I'm happy to take credit for it. If you don't, I'm happy to throw him under the bus. Either way works for me, okay? So there are four things that I want to say this morning as we ponder the challenge of ministering to our prodigal children. The first thing that I want to say to you this morning is that if you are doing that, you are not alone. And I really want you to know that. As I said, I think I've always known that the crowds I were preaching to included people with wayward children. I just don't think I ever sensed how expansive 
that crowd was because it is not the kind of information that parents want to share. If your kid hits the home run that wins the state championship, you want someone to catch a picture of that. That's going on social media except for Kirk so everybody in the world can know about that, right? But if your kid gets busted because he has pot in the locker, we don't want anybody knowing about that. And when your kid starts losing his faith, that's not bulletin material for next Sunday, right? In fact, I can tell you, for the first year, I didn't talk to anybody about this except for my wife. I didn't want to. And so for many parents, they've just been quietly keeping this secret. I worked with one congregation for 12 years, and I got up and preached a sermon one Sunday, and one of the guys in our church that I have known for 12 years came up and talked to me for the first time about his prodigal son. I didn't know he had a son. And I'd known the man for 12 years. This is not a new problem. In fact, it's as old as Adam and Eve, whose son was murderously rebellious. The great judge Samuel, who we celebrated scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1, appointed his sons to serve in his place, but they were corrupt and wicked men and did terrible things that, you know, just broke their father's heart. David, who's called a man after God's own heart in scripture, on the back of end of his life is terribly grieved because of the horrific behavior of his children. God's people have always struggled with this. And so just know, if you're traveling this road, you are traveling a road that God's people have traveled all down through time. And I promise you, because I've met the people, there are folks all over the country who are on this journey with you. In fact, in fact, this crowd is too big and the numbers aren't in your favor. There are people in this crowd. There may be people in this crowd you don't know about who are doing the same thing bearing the same burden. And I'll tell you the other wonderful thing is even those who don't have wayward kids still love and care about you. I'll tell you what Heidi and I have discovered as people began to find out about this is that our brothers and sisters weren't all judgy and critical and questioning our parenting. They grieved with us and they supported us and comforted us. Our brethren have put into practice Galatians 6.2 as we've made this journey and they've helped us along the way. So here's the thing. If you're in that position, you don't have to keep the secret anymore. You don't have to bear the burden by yourself. You don't have to do this alone because you're not. That's the first thing I wanted to say. I have something else I want to say to you this morning. I'm going to warn you about this second point. As I start going through this, you're going to begin to wonder if I am ever going to stop today. Because the second point is going to be really long. But I promise you three and four are not that long. So, so look, I want lunch too. So we're not going on and on this morning. But you'll understand why I say this is going to take some time. The second thing I want to say to you is it's not your fault. And, and if that sounds self-serving for a dad with a prodigal, what part of this lesson does it? But, but, but let me throw my friend under the bus. That's what he wrote to me in the email. In fact, it's the very first thing he said to me. He said, it's not your fault. And then in parentheses, whatever you just said in your mind to disagree with me, it's still not your fault. It is the struggle for parents with wayward children. The blame game. We wrestle with questions like, where did I go wrong? 
What was it that I failed to do? Or what did I do that was the wrong thing that contributed to my child's spiritual catastrophe? There are assumptions underneath those questions. Important ones. Assumptions like if at some point down the road you have a kid that stops walking with Jesus, it must be because somewhere, somewhere during his growing up years, you blew it. You messed up. This is your fault. In fact, people would say, of course we operate with that assumption because it's in the Bible, right? So you knew I was going to go to Proverbs 22, 6, right? Will you go there in your Bible, Proverbs 22, verse 6? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Trust me. Every parent with a prodigal knows this verse well. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So if you raise your kids to serve the Lord, when they grow up and become adults, they will not depart from that path. So now work the logic backwards. If at some point in the future, our adult children stop walking the path, then it must be because we did not train up the child in the way that he should go, right? Growing up, that's what I was always taught about that passage. And then I took the time to actually pay attention to the passage. And I got to tell you, there's a lot wrong with that kind of thinking. I know it seems self-serving, but let's just be interested in truth, right? So first of all, if you look at verse 6, you know that it does not say, train up your children to serve the Lord. Well, you look at your Bible, is that what your Bible says? Because that isn't what Bible Bible says. Mine says to train up a child in the way he should Go. What I didn't realize until I really started looking at this in some depth is that there are different ways that language is understood. In fact, some people say that it doesn't have anything to do with serving God at all. That what the wise man is trying to say is raise up your children, direct them in a path that is consistent with their talents and abilities. Or to put that another way, dads, if your son is more artsy than athletic, then let him be in the band and don't force him to play football. You will survive. That's not his way. Or if your kid isn't good with math, don't press him to be an accountant because you were an accountant. That isn't his way. Do you see the point? By the way, whether that's the meaning here or not. Isn't that great advice for parents? Don't push them down a path that isn't their way. And that may very well be what the wise man is talking about. But then let's add secondly. Let's assume that he is saying, raise your children to serve the Lord. The second thing I'd ask you to consider is that when we deal with Proverbs, we are not dealing with things that are absolutely true. We're dealing with things that are generally true, not guaranteed. And if you think I'm being sketchy with that, all I would do is point out that that is the way we handle the other Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 10 with me, if you will. Proverbs 10, and go down to verse 27. Now, this will become crystal clear as we start looking at some other places. Like Proverbs 10 and verse 27, where it says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Let me ask you, is that true? Well, it can be. I think, I think if you listen to the Lord, you'll avoid doing stupid things that might cut your life short. Is it okay for me to say stupid? Because sometimes things are, right? 
a, a righteous man, I think, may live longer because he's listening to the Lord. And if you're a wicked man, you may wind up doing foolish things that end your life early. But listen, does this first guarantee that if you're righteous, you'll live a long time? I know that's not true. I know some good righteous people who died very young. And how do you explain Hugh Hefner if this is a guarantee? Yeah, one of the most wicked guys that ever lived. What? He lived, the guy was almost 100 years old before he died. See the point? Yeah, it's generally true. It's not guaranteed. Let me give you another quick example. Proverbs 15. Same thing. Proverbs 15. This is one of my favorite Proverbs. And verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Is that true? Does a gentle answer turn away wrath? It is sometimes because I use it. When I get in heated conversations, I make myself talk low and slow. And, you know, that really has the capacity to kind of drain the energy as a conversation, Right? Does it work every time? I can testify personally. No. I have talked low and slow only to have the other guy who is really mad bulldoze right over me and just get madder and madder. That's because it's not guaranteed, folks. It's just a general principle that is true some of the time, not every time. Now, will you go back to Proverbs 22, 6? Bring up your child in the way that he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. If you raise your children to serve Jesus, is it likely that that's what they will do the rest of their life? I think that is absolutely sure, absolutely true. It is it is it a guarantee that my children will never choose a different path? Y'all know that's not true because what happens is they grow up and they get out of school and they get off the payroll and they do this awful thing. They start making their own choices about stuff. I think we've interpreted Proverbs 22, 6 that way because we want that to be true. We want there to be some kind of guarantee that if I'll just check all the boxes, my kids will turn out right. And that is not true. Because you'll never check all the boxes. And if you did, they may still make a different choice. So I just suggest that we use Proverbs 22, 6 like we use all of the other Proverbs. But I'll be honest with you, I doubt clarifying what that verse is really saying is going to be much consolation to parents with prodigals. I think we still struggle with, with that sense that somehow I'm responsible for this. So let me say secondly, while dealing with the issue of blame, that often the reason we do that is because we take something that is very, very complicated and we make it simple. In other words, Here's his loss of faith. I need to be able to draw a line right back to this moment in time where I said or I did the wrong thing. So there's this straight line between my failure and his fall. It is not that simple. Listen, for years now, even before I had a wayward kid, I've talked to people who've left the path. And I've got to tell you. There's a lot wrapped up in that, folks. Lots of things can be, uh, contribute to people's spiritual struggle and the destabilizing of their faith. I think parents can have a part in that. If you look at Proverbs 29, will you go there? Proverbs 29, and I'm thinking about verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, 
but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So the wise man makes a clear connection between parental failure and future trouble for kids. Parents are part of this process. I am not denying that because he goes on to say in verse 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also, uh, he will also delight your soul. So parents are part of this, but here's the problem. None of us parent perfectly, right? Even people who have all these kids they can line up that are still faithful to the Lord. You go back and look, they messed up along the way. God gives babies to these people who have no experience bringing up babies at all. And nobody knows that better than grandpa, right? We see it. And it's since we all grow up together. And just like your kids mess it up and blow it sometimes, so do you. So do those parents who have all these children who are faithful. In fact, here's an interesting thing. Have you ever considered how parenting and outcome don't always line up? I know, I know, it's self-serving, but nonetheless, it's true. You know it is. You've seen someone who, from all that you could tell outwardly, was doing all the right stuff, and all their kids turned out just like you would accept, expect, except for the rebel, right? You've seen it. Some kid who got all the right stuff, and just when he got old enough, took a path off in a completely different direction. What's more curious is when it happens the other way. You've seen this too, right? Some family that was just a mess, and yet out of that mess came this kid who was rock solid and faithful to the Lord. How does that happen? Go back and look at Josiah's story that we talked about in the first hour. Josiah's father and grandfather were as wicked as they come. And he turns around and he comes on the scene and leads this great revival. How does that happen? I have a kid who preaches the gospel. He's preached the gospel here. And a kid who always isn't sure God exists. How do those two kids grow up in the same house? I don't know the answer to that. And I'll tell you this. Yours is not going to be the only voice they hear. If you go back to Proverbs 1, that's where he opens this book of wisdom. Go to Proverbs 1. And I'm thinking down around verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. There's a kid whose mom and dad did all the right thing. They taught him to serve the Lord. And yet, in spite of that, listen to this warning. My son, if sinners entice you. Well, that shouldn't be a factor if mom and dad did all the right stuff, right? But it is. If sinners entice you, do not consent. So there's another voice out there that they will hear. A crowd of kids at school. In the neighborhood, a college professor, a poor choice in his spouse can become that other voice that says, that says something different than what they grew up with. And it isn't just about people. It's about stuff, too. I had a girl that I was, that I was exchanging emails with who, who spent time away from the Lord. And she said, I can tell you what happened to me. My home was a mess. And I had a teacher at school that I was really close to. And he died of cancer. And I was mad at God. Her question was, 
How could God let him die when he knew how much I needed that guy? It wasn't a person. It was an event in life, a divorce, a, a sudden unexpected death, a tragic death. Lots can happen to destabilize someone's faith. And brothers and sisters, each of us have to decide how we're going to respond to to life. Which is what I think my friend was trying to say when he wrote that in my email. It's not your fault. I don't think he was saying anything about my parenting. I think what he was saying is whatever you did as a parent, good or bad, at the end of the day, hear me on this. At the end of the day, everybody makes their choice about God. I will not be able to go before God on Judgment Day and say, look, I would have served you, but I had some wicked friends growing up that just took me off on the wrong path. Or I married a woman who was a bad influence on me and who discouraged me from serving you. Or my mom and dad didn't know enough family devotionals. They didn't pray enough by my bedside. They set a bad example for me. They were hypocrites. They weren't, they weren't in the world, but they were at church. Listen, whatever I get from my mom and dad, good or bad, at the end of the day, I decide about God. Why did Josiah lead that great revival when his dad and granddad were so wicked? Wicked because he chose to serve the Lord. And your children will do that too. One of the things my friend said to me in his email was, he said, you know, your problem is you took too much credit when he was doing good. And now that he isn't, you're taking too much blame. He said the truth is he did good because he chose to do good. And now he's not because he's choosing not to serve the Lord. Now, one more thing. Some people may be saying, but look, I know. I know I bear some blame here. Maybe you weren't even a Christian when your kids were growing up. You didn't even know the Lord then. You came to the Lord late in life, and now you're looking back and you're just filled with regret that you didn't give your children any teaching about him at all. Listen, if you can look back and see your failure, here's what you do. Own it. Sit down with your kids and say, I want to apologize to you. I want to repent. I should have done better. I should have lived better. I should have taught you to know the Lord. I would love to do that now, but I want to apologize for that failure. But then remember that while you and I as parents get to participate in their growing up process, we make contributions. We do not determine our children's spiritual future. Everybody makes his own choice about God. I cannot blame my mom and dad if I don't serve Jesus. And if I don't get to do that, my son doesn't get to do that either. Now, let me tell you about that. I understand that up here. Intellectually, that all locks together. I get it. I'm working on it down here, okay? Because I still feel like a failure. It's not your fault. Okay, that took a while, right? Two quick ones. The third thing I want to say to you is never give up. Because that's what my friend said in his email too. In fact, I'll be honest with you, it made me mad when I read that. I thought, this is my kid. What do you mean never give up? I would never give up on my children. I was so naive. That was the first year. Now, it's been almost a decade. 
had no idea what that road looked like and the dark days that were ahead. And I'm embarrassed to confess to you tonight or this morning. But, but my wife is sitting here, so I have to admit it because she's heard it. I've been there. In moments of utter frustration and anger, just I've said the words, I'm done with this kid. This is hopeless. We're not getting anywhere. I just, I give up. And as soon as I say those words, I think about the email. So I'm going to say them to you. If you got a wayward kid, don't give up. Now, I need to unpack that just a bit, okay? So let me do just a little more with that. When I say don't give up, I don't mean every time you're in his presence, press the issue with him. I am not saying that. In fact, let me give you a passage to help you with that. Go to the New Testament. Go to the book of Colossians. Because I got to tell you, in dealing with my wayward kid, I have really been hanging on to Colossians. Let me read chapter 4. Starting in verse 2, let's read a little bit of this together. We'll go down to verse 6. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. If I was going to tie that up in a package and label it, the label would say, be wise with lost people. I think that's the point that he's making. In fact, what I learn what, 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 I, what I'm impressed with is that Paul is very specific about speech. Do you see that in verse 6? He said, really, really work hard to say the right things that are just fitting for that moment. And if I could add as part of that wisdom, sometimes what that means is not saying anything at all. There's a time to keep your mouth shut. We know that with lost people we deal with, right? I've encountered some folks that I wanted to talk to about Jesus, and this is what I got, right? They weren't open. They weren't at a place where they were ready to receive it. And I will tell you, when you get this from people, leave them alone for now. Because there may be a season down the road where they soften. And if I haven't, if I haven't pushed them away, there may still be an opportunity there. So what I'm saying to you is, if you've got a wayward kid and they are not open, this is a time to be quiet. Quit talking. Quit pressing. And maybe there will be a season down the road. Now, when I say don't talk about it, I'm not saying don't do anything. Because if you look at this context, there's all kinds of things to do. In fact, back up to verse 3, and and Paul says to the Colossians, I need you praying for me. I need you praying for God to open doors. I think this is where we mess up with our wayward children. We keep running ahead of God. Well, what we need to do is get behind God, and we need to be praying with him, open the door, create the opportunity. And then the other thing I can be doing is working on gracious speech. What are my kids struggling with? What, what, what can I read and study? Who can I talk to to sort of mentally prepare myself for the moment when the door is open, right? And so I can have meaningful, gracious 
fitting conversations with them. So there's prayer to be done. There's thought and study to be done to get ready for the conversation. It doesn't mean I'm not doing anything, but it does mean sometimes I need to quit talking and pushing when they're not open. That may rob me of a future opportunity. And I promise you, the easiest thing in the world is to stand up here and tell you that. I know it's like saying cut off your right arm in practicing it. It's hard. Because what I want to do is grab my kid and sit him at the table, and we got to sit there four days, 24-7. I just want to work through this stuff and get it fixed. It's terrible when they grow up and get off the payroll, isn't it? You don't have a card left to play in the game. They're independent adults. And so that's where you got to shift in your mind. You've got to treat your adult children as independent adults. But we're never giving up. As long as they're here and we're here and the Lord hadn't come, there's always hope that they can be reached. Last thing I want to say to you this morning. Don't ever give up. But you got to keep going. You got to continue the journey. This is the hardest one for me. I vividly remember when my children were born. I remember when my wife was carrying our oldest son and the conversations we had about our hopes and dreams for our kids. I got to tell you, there are things that we wanted. For our kids, but fundamentally, our mission was single. We wanted to be in heaven with our children. That's what our child raising journey was all about. And in those early years, when we have so much control over what they choose to do, we naively believed that we were going to be able to determine that process, and then they grow up. And if you're raising kids, you'll discover what we did. They become independent adults. And the dreadful possibility is that they will choose, they will choose another path. It can happen. And if not your kids, maybe somebody else that you love and care about will make that choice. They will, they will. They will walk away from Jesus and they will take a different path. And what happens when this occurs is this great rescue mission breaks out, right? We just pursue them and try to persuade them to come back to Jesus. And sometimes at work, I've had people come up to me after this lesson and say, hey, don't give up on your kid. I was gone 15 years and I think, 15 years? Like, I don't want to go five more minutes. But sometimes people walk away and they never come back. So my question for you is when it's your kid or someone that you really love and care about that leave and never come back, what are you going to do? Now, I need you to hear me on this, okay? This is what you're going to do. It's the same thing the two of us are doing. You're going to get up, and you're going to dust yourself off, and you're going to keep going. 
Because the adversary would like nothing better than to take someone else's spiritual catastrophe and make you the collateral damage. There's nothing more important, brothers and sisters, than in the end being found in him. That's everything that is life. And so if someone in this church family walks away, you're not going with them. If someone in your family walks away, one of your kids does, you're not going with them. I can tell you right now, I don't love anyone more on earth than this lady right here, but I will tell you, if she stops, I'm still going. I'll go without her. It'll break my heart. But I'm going. And so I'm saying that to you today. Don't you be someone else's collateral damage. Whatever happens in life, whoever else stops, that's not you. Get up. Keep going. Can I return to the story of the prodigal son? It's where we began in Luke 15 in the reading this morning. I love the father in that story. That son was a mess. Treated his father terribly. Did horrible, horrible things. Ended up with the pigs. His, he decided to come back home. You see his daddy, right? Boy, it would have been hard not to stand there and say, yep, I knew this would happen one day, right? Oh, the temptation to say, I told you you are going to make a mess. Here you are, you know, his daddy, doesn't, his daddy doesn't speak. He just falls on him and weeps over him and loves him and receives him. And they all party together that night. Heaven celebrates. So I don't know who in the crowd's in a mess this morning. I don't know anything about you. But maybe there is someone who's right where that kid is in a mess. In fact, maybe you've even decided, I don't think God would ever want me back. I have been in such dark and terrible places. Let me just tell you, if you feel that way, you're absolutely wrong about that. The truth is God looks down from the windows of heaven with tear-stained eyes as he has time and time again, hoping and and desiring that this would be your moment and you would come back and heaven could celebrate. So the father's waiting. And the only issue to be decided is are you going to break his heart again? Or are you going to come home? I long to see that day when my son comes back to Jesus. And in that way, I have just a little sense of how much God wants you to come back today. I hope it'll be your choice. If you need, if you need to respond to him, make your way to the front right now while we stand, while we sing.